Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, Chair of the Humanities Forum, which organized tonight's event. I'd like to welcome our live audience here in San Francisco and our radio and online audiences. And you can visit us at www.commonwealthclub.org. Tonight, we have uh, two uh, people here to speak about Silicon City, which obviously uh, is a reference to our whole area um, and the history of it and what's happened. Um, Carrie McClellan is a documentary filmmaker, an author, uh, a rights advocate, and the author of Silicon City. And he will be interviewed by Lenny Mendoka, who's on the, ch on the board of directors of uh, the Commonwealth Club. In addition, Lenny is a chief economic and business advisor and director of the Office of Business and Economic Development for the state of California. So, Lenny and Carrie, let's talk about what's happened to our city. That's not weird and wonderful. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> or that is, in its own way. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. And, uh, Carrie, it's great to have a chance to talk to you about what your, your book and your perspectives on what's happened in our great city and Silicon Valley. So thanks for joining us. Lenny, thank you. Thank you for hustling down from Sacramento and all the uh, busy work you're doing there. Yeah. Thank you for that as well. Oh, and thank you for everybody for coming. Thank you, George, uh, for organizing this. We really appreciate it. Thanks, George. So um, Kerry had agreed to come to the Bay Area, and he's coming to my class at Stanford on Thursday. And I said, if you're going to come, you actually have to have an event at the Commonwealth Club so we can have a real conversation about your book and your thoughts about what's happened to our city and region. So thank you for joining us tonight. Pleasure. And let me just give a little bit of setup to, and we're going to talk largely mm -hmm. at using your book as a way to frame this conversation, and then we will open it up for questions as well. But Kerry's book called Silicon City documents the, the, the transformation of San Francisco in the digital age. And it starts uh, thinking about the topic after the Great Recession, while the rest of the country was trying to figure out what to do. The tech area between San Francisco and, and San Jose really sprinted ahead and became the engine of the new economy, offering a lot of opportunity for the young and for those who had, to take, had the opportunity to take advantage of it. But at the same time that was happening, there was a massive increase in inequality in the region. And so San Francisco's income gap grew faster than any other American city, making it the most unequal city in the country by 2015. Mm -hmm. And those kind of pressures put all kinds of things that those of us who live or are familiar with, with pushing people out, exodus of people who were here to begin with, and a whole set of challenges that has put both opportunity and stress on the city and the region. And Carrie's book documents that particularly interestingly to me through a whole series of interviews that are actual conversations with real people mm -hmm. about how they're thriving in that environment, how they're challenged, it's challenged by it, how they're coping with it and what it means, trying to make sense of that whole environment in a journalistic approach that helps us understand it through the voices of people. So that's what the book's about. And we look forward to the conversation to have you give us some richness on that, Carrie. Thank you. So why don't you tell us a little bit about why you decided to do this, and talk a little bit about your approach about mm -hmm. how you constructed your your work. Yeah, thanks. I mean, I, I'm I'm both. I have a foot in the Bay Area and a foot out at all times. And my family uh, has some roots here. Um, my grandparents met and fell in love here. My parents, um, who I'm grateful are here actually tonight, met <laughs> uh, and fell in love here. Um, relocated our family eventually to New York, and then I met my wife here. Uh, and started the cycle over again. Um, and then again, we've recently relocated to New York. I came here after myself personally, after a, a 10 plus career year career internationally, um, working as a documentary filmmaker, journalist, and, and something of a human rights advocate, something as a, at the intersection of all three, um, helping to make videos that would impact important human rights issues, helping to train journalists in countries where the media capacity was weak, um, and helping to... Um, and try to surface conflict resolution solutions in post-conflict environments. Um, I'd worked in East Timor, uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo, and almost three years in Pakistan, wound up in the Bay Area here to go to law school after getting injured reasonably significantly and realizing I needed a, a job where I didn't have to climb and run around and carry a camera all the time. And felt suddenly I was in an environment that felt way too close to many of the 
issues, problems, and struggles that I was dealing with overseas. Um, much of the uh, fracture within the community here um, felt similar to the kind of um, unfortunate and often illegitimate dif- uh, disparities between the wealthy and, and, and those who are not in other countries. And I think particularly the homelessness issue struck me as an uh, on-its-face human rights abuse from the day I arrived in around 2011. And so that began a sort of interrogation for me. Then suddenly I'm at law school and I'm trying to figure out how to become useful to this region. There are a number of ways I became plugged into a number of different communities. But immediately I saw the fact that we just couldn't get the right hand to talk to the left in many of our policy solutions. That's beginning to happen now, which is exciting. And I think we can talk about some of the ways that the book has is beginning to bridge into a moment where we are talking about realism, regionalism, we are talking about coordination, we are talking about acting at scale. But at the time, we were really just trying to get our head around the problem, and experts on housing, experts on health, experts on education couldn't see the connections, experts on criminal justice couldn't see how the problems in sort of one discipline were arriving in another. And so I just began doing what I did all the time, the family connection here and the fact that my wife, uh, whose family is also here, um, uh, the fact that she had grown up in Palo Alto and felt very connected to this region in a way. This was a place of family and stories, and it was important to begin my interrogation of um, what was going on by just sitting down with as many people as I could and and learning their stories. And so my background as a journalist is more in oral history than it is in uh, any kind of instrumental journalism. Um, I don't come into interviews with a particular agenda. I tend to invite the subjects that I speak to to tell their story at whatever length they feel like they tell it. So I'm sometimes sitting in two, four, eight-hour interviews. I'm sometimes returning back to people's homes over and over again to complete the work. Uh, and so a lot of these are then edit, transcribed, edited down, and presented in a fashion that sort of creates a hybrid conversation across the book. Yes. It's about 50 different interviews called from about 150 that I did for the book in total. But each one is supposed to build on the next so that this is really the opportunity for us as a community to really have a conversation sit in one place where no matter where we live in the Bay Area, no matter what corner of the city we live in, no matter what job we do, no matter whether we feel really active on these issues or a little bit overwhelmed by them, um, we live in our own corner and our own silo of wherever we're from. I continue to do that in New York as, as civically as I try to engage. I continue to do that here despite having done the book. And so this is a real opportunity for us to sort of break out of whatever our own day-to-day life is and begin to empathize and really absorb a real kaleidoscope of the region and try to understand how some problems that we don't live in day-to-day are, are in people's bedrooms and in people's kitchens. Hmm. Um, at least from my perspective, it makes for both a a very compelling set of stories, but a very interesting read. It feel, it reads like a documentary. Yeah, I mean, some of what I mean the the work that some of the better people at the, to this than myself predate me. And Studs Terkel is a huge um, icon and role model, though I never met him. And part of I think what this work is trying to do is really democratize our ability to listen to one another. When we watch TV or we listen to radio, the indicia of our voice, the sort of what that what people's homes look like, what shoes they're wearing, what clothes they put on, what their accent is can often throw us into a series of associations that make us color their story as we're listening to it. Um, as we're watching people, we're sort of making judgments of who they are and um, where they come from and how credible their voice is, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Everybody's black and white print on the page. Everybody's relevant relatively the same length here. Everybody is each and the only context they have isn't their home or their background or whatever environment a filmmaker decided to put them in front of, but it's each other. We are each other's context. Um, And so that's the hope for the book is to sort of take us out of some of our, our preconceived ideas about what people sound like and put us fairly against one another so that we're living in the same room as it were. And as you entered your exploration of these interviews mm-hmm. on the book, did you have a, an ingoing assumption about what the, the overarching story was going to be or kind of what your, your perspective was? And then if not, what did, you, what did you learn as you went through it? I think I had an eagerness to, to do two things, one of which was to sort of understand how people felt connected to um, the mythology of this region. So there was very much at the beginning a sense of like, where do you come from? Where does your family come from? Where do you, how do you identify as a Californian and a Northern California in particular? Um, unprompted, many people felt like they lived in the shadow of gold rush mythology in their own way. And then I think um, I care deeply about 
listening to the ways in which people's lives were connected to one another. So the ways in which um, problems at home or a struggle for a, a family member to get home and supervise homework could lead to a kid ending up in the street, could lead to criminal justice issues, or a family's employment issues could wind up in um, an emergency room looking like a very different health problem than we could see. And a lot of the people in the book, because they're sitting like their fingers right on the pulse of whatever issue that they're dealing with. They are ER doctors or they are um, uh, homelessness counselors or they are homeless themselves or they are um, innovators in tech who are building um, sort of moonshot climate change solutions. Each of them are really sitting on a question where they are trying to be the best citizen that they can be. Um, and the striking thing throughout every interview I did, whether they made it into the book or not, was every single individual here identified a problem, identified it reasonably similarly, although there were some differences about what solutions to bring, private sector versus public sector. And people were working as hard as they could to align with the tools that they knew at close to them to some kind of problem-solving effort. Now, we can celebrate some efforts differently than others, and I don't want to create a false equivalence to everybody in the book to some degree or another in any way. But there is this this instinct in the Bay Area that gets that that resonates through all of this. So you, there's the gold rush on the other hand, but there's this deep, deep tradition of social justice and deep, deep tradition of community action here that was was that I actually wasn't looking for, but found found in the book surfacing up um, in every interview. So that was very meaningful as well. So let's talk a little bit about some of the, the people that you interviewed and kind of mm -hmm. the range of what's in the book. And I, I want to give people a little flavor of more detail yeah. about a couple of them. So, yeah. So I think we, you know, we interviewed, um, I interviewed major leaders in, in finance, major leaders, major venture capitalists, uh, Ron Conway, Tim Draper. Um, I interviewed some people who were there at sort of the birth of the semiconductor and the birth um, of Silicon Valley. Regis McKenna, who was a major um, marketing guru for Apple and a bunch of other company, important companies. Um, Coco Khan, who was uh, with Tim Timothy Leary and a bunch of people in the early sort of psychedelic days of tech. Um, and then there are also people who are built uh, uh, many of Google's virtual reality projects, um, folks building the self-driving car. I mentioned um, Saul Griffith, who uh, runs Other Labs, who's, I, I, I think, one of, the, one of the major leaders of sort of creative solutions to climate change. Um, and that's sort of some of the voices inside tech, including some other people who are um, doing any number of other jobs. Um, within the administration of those companies. And then there's also voices, I think, who speak to the social justice origins of the community. So there's um, uh, Carol Queen, who's a major sexologist and LGBTQ advocate. There's um, Elaine Katzenberger, who I think represents a sort of artistic tradition of the city, who's the, the, one of the, the executive director of City Lights. Um, and then the hope is really to just sort of drill down into some people who either represent some of the controversies of the last five or 10 years. There's one of the leaders of the Google pro bus protests, Google bus protests. That shouldn't be um, a tongue twister, but it is. Um, uh, one, uh, an Uber driver. Uh, the, there's a cab driver in the book who, of course, contrasts some of the self-driving car narratives, but himself was uh, uh, the head of the taxi commission who had uh, written the law to convert San Francisco's car to a green fleet. And so part of his story is also watching that work get undone by thousands of cars arriving on San Francisco streets, um, uh, which even if they were all hybrid cars themselves, the sort of sheer mass of them, the totality of them um, for ride sharing has, has sort of certainly undone his ability to get the city to meet its Kyoto Accord goals. Um, and then just, I think there's a, a number of people who, who represent more like quotidian points of view, but who nonetheless are being affected. There's a former longshoreman who I think has the sort of deepest and mo most poetic perspective on, on what it meant to be, um, you know, in a union once upon a time and, and what that community felt like. And he wanders through uh, the riverfront now, kind of lost in a, in a neighborhood that terrifies him. So I think all those things, you know, we live in a city that's changing. It's changing very quickly. Change in cities is sort of inevitable. Um, but I think for everybody, it, 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 for everybody in the book, whether you're inside tech or you're outside of it, everybody feels a sense of being somewhat unmoored by um, uh, uh, the pace and the particular directionality of the change right now. So I'm going to ask you one more general question that I'd yeah. like you to please have an opportunity to 
give us a little bit of a sense of a couple of the interviews that mm-hmm. you really want to give people a flavor for, for those of us who haven't had a chance to read the book. But how did you choose who you wanted to interview? And what did you say to them when you were going to talk to them? That's a great question. So I, so you sort of begin where you can, you know, um, if you don't know something for if my approach is typically, if I'm ignorant of something, which is almost all the time, um, I speak to experts first and try to get a sense of their perspective on these issues. I try to get a good number of them. And then I really try to ask them to tell me who has good stories to tell. Um, and that's how you can get a good number of sources out of your reach. Um, but then I, and this is my deep belief in this kind of work. Then I think if you're doing the work right, serendipity just works in your favor. Um, certainly Paul Gillespie, the cab driver I spoke of, I just happened to be riding in his cab. Um, uh, I was doing a lot of work around juvenile justice because I felt like that story, connecting that story to the schools was really important to me um, in trying to figure out whether there was a link there and what was it. Um, and I met a guy who... Um, helped introduce me to a number of kids he worked with. He was essentially a social worker. He turned into, he, at the end of five interviews I did that day, he turned to me and said, um, do you want to interview me? I said, oh, sure. I was exhausted. I, I probably was this close to giving up that day. And it turns out he had, he was a, um, he'd been doing that work for about 10 years. He'd been lauded by Eric Holder, lauded by um, Governor Brown for the work, considered a, a, a game-changing uh, advocate for children in the criminal justice system. Um, his child had gotten sick. He needed to get a second job because a nonprofit salary didn't get him very far in San Francisco. So his second job was to become a prison guard in juvenile prisons. And so really his, in- <coughs> his interview in terms of if there's dark and light in this book and there's an attempt to sort of balance both, his interview really for me is the sort of heart of this bottom moment where we, we have these antibodies in the system that we're sort of breaking apart at this point that, that, um, you know, he does, he's undoes the work at night that he does during the day and he takes two steps forward and hopefully not three steps back each night. Um, and that was to me, um, if I hadn't been alive to that moment, if I'd been as tired as I was and just gone home and had a coffee or, um, seen my wife or done any of the other things other than, um, listening, which was my job that day, um, I would have missed it. Hmm. Yeah. Fascinating. Well, why don't you give us a little flavor for a couple of the people that you interviewed that can give us a little bit more color into what they really said? I'd love to. Um, I think I'm just going to read two, um, and, and forgive me at the outset of this, um, part of what's supposed to happen in, in, in constructing a book like this and using the structure is that the book lives in your imagination and not in my voice. Um, but for the moment, we'll go through this exercise, um, and forgive me. Okay, so this is Adexa. She runs black and blue tattoo right on the border between the mission and Castro. She's known for her abstract work. She says, I'm trying to find it on their body. I'm not really creating something. I believe it's already in there, and I'm just bringing it out. I think Michelangelo said this, the form is already in the stone, and you're just finding it. She came from Germany to California. As a teenager hitchhiking all the way from Los Angeles to San Francisco, we sit behind the shop drinking tea in her garden. And then this is Adexa. I grew up in a very homogenous society that I'd never felt like quite like I was a part of or fit into. I think a lot of people feel that about their communities. When I was 25, I moved here for good and changed my name. My given name is Stephanie, and I was Steffi growing up in Germany. And then once I became an adult, I didn't fit it anymore. And so when I moved here, Peter Paul started calling me Steph, and it was almost right. Adexa is derived from the German word for lizard. So some people call me Dex, which feels even better. People kind of made space for me. I'd never experienced that. I always felt like I had to work really hard to create a little bit of space for myself, a little niche that I could breathe in. I came here and came out really heavy duty into S&M, and I started tattooing pretty much right away. And people kind of went, ooh, here you are, and I'll move over a little bit. And I just kind of stepped up into that space, and I opened my shop when I was 29. People often ask, how did you think of opening a woman's shop? And it was like, well, if you're a feminist and you're a dyke and you're surrounded with women, it's not that far-fetched at all. We opened right next to Red Dora's Bearded Lady, a lesbian cafe. Also, I came from a culture where women were allowed to separate in a way. 
We had women, women's bookshops in Germany. We had women's stores. Men weren't allowed, and it was legal. The mailman got yelled at for coming inside. We got a lot of resistance. It always felt like there was a tattoo mafia. I didn't know if it was Hell's Angels, the old guard, but they were assholes, and they could be assholes. It was exciting to have a place where men didn't assume that it was their place. We had the clientele that didn't feel comfortable going into other shops. Tons of people who were like, I got tattooed there, and it felt horrible. Many men wanted to get tattooed by us. People who felt like those just are not my people, and I don't feel taken care of. It opened my eyes to how many men felt uncomfortable with that kind of machismo. I really felt every tattoo artist should be into S&M because they should know about consensuality, about taking somebody through an intensive experience, about negotiating, about rites of passage. I had a dream of a tattoo shop that was a lot more spiritual. It's funny, the mission used to be our space. It was lesbians in the mission and the fags and the Castro. But before that, the mission belonged to Latinos, and I didn't speak Spanish. I wasn't part of that culture in a way where I could feel good about taking apartments away from them. Now my rent is a lot higher than it used to be. When I moved into this new space, my rent was probably a third of what I'm paying now, and it's only been 12 years. There's no limit in commercial stuff. Landlords can just raise it to $20,000, and people just have to move. There's no protection. So it's always happening. It's just a little too easy to distance yourself from it and not take any responsibility. I'm definitely part of it. I'm even profiting from it. Now, if you don't have a tattoo, you're an outsider. And we're a high-end shop. It's great that people have money. It's great that people have credit cards. We're not a used bookstore that has to leave. We're still here. We're holding on. We are from a shipwreck, and I actually have a piece of wood. No, oh, it's horrible what's happening. People getting kicked out. You hear buildings are being set on fire so they can get rid of people. You see people digging in trash cans, but it's also beautiful. There's a lot of money that's been put into the neighborhood and into buildings, buildings that would have fallen apart if they have been renovated. Oh, it's the end of the world soon. We're not the first generation who thinks that. There's always a reason. There's always the doom. There's always the movement that kicks out the weak. That doesn't mean it's okay, but it's not new. It's important to be conscious of the cycle that's been going on forever. There's no bad guy or good guy. We all participate in it. It's really hard to make changes on a bigger level. This is Leon Fakiri. He sits by the window of a cafe on Polk Street between Knob Hill and the Tenderloin, looking down the street at an old strip club now flanked by shops and restaurants, hipster barbers all intended for the young professionals ambling by in the afternoon sun. Born and raised in the Democratic Republic of Congo, he moved here looking for opportunities, a better life. He had studied computer science, got a degree in networking systems, and he dreamed that he would be one of the young and lucky strolling down the street in sunglasses and athletic wear. I didn't speak English at all. The first time I went to Starbucks, I had my dictionary with me, French, English, and I ordered a coffee. I was hoping the person would just say yes and give me the coffee uh, and I'd pay and leave. But somehow she asked me, do you need room for cream? <laughs> Based on the dictionary, room is a space you find in an apartment, a house or something like that. So I learned to say no. <laughs> or when I used to go to a burger place and the person would go, how do you like your meat to be cooked? And I go, the way you like it. Sometimes I found somebody who liked his burger rare and it was very bad or very well done, but I had to deal with that. That's how survival instincts work. I came here in 2008. The economy was going very bad, so I took the path that lots of immigrants take. Work hard, work hard, work hard. I sold sunglasses. I was a waiter. There is nothing easy. You start working very early and then you get to bed very late. You don't know any better. Just need to work hard. Many people went through even worse than me and they kept going. They kept going, so I kept going. It reminds me that proverb from Thomas Friedman's The World is Flat, that every morning in Africa the sun comes up and a lion has to run faster than the slowest gazelle, otherwise he will starve to death. Every morning in Africa a gazelle wakes up and it knows it must outrun the fastest lion, so it doesn't matter if you're a lion or a gazelle in Africa. When the sun comes up, you better start running. <laughs> a friend of mine told me about Uber. Why don't you try and see if you're going to like it? I knew the city because from time to time I used to work with a limo service doing pickups for extra money. So I said, why not? It was about five years ago, the beginning of Uber. They had a small office on Ellis and I found like six kids trying to make it happen. They were completely lost, didn't even know the city. They had a test, just one of the boys trying to ask me some sneaking ways about the city. And he goes, if you're taking Turk towards downtown, and I go, eh, Turk goes one way. It goes the other side. Are you talking about Golden Gate? trying to give me a test and he didn't even know the answers himself. He got lost between the Park 55 and the Clift Hotel. 
I was one of the earliest Uber drivers in the world. They learned from us everything. There was only one service at the time, black town cars, nothing else. Uber never advertised at the beginning. It's town cars who made Uber what it is now. We knew customer service. We knew how to build business long-term. Every client to us was an account. It exploded. All of a sudden, everyone knew about Uber. Everybody wanted to use Uber. Even that word became so popular that it became part of our language. It's like Google. I'm going to Google it. I'm going to Uber home. Uber gave me the opportunity to work and the freedom of time. I worked 12, 14 hours a day working hard to make it happen. I got my own car. I got my own commercial registration, my own licenses, my own everything. I have my own company now, other drivers, three cars. They made a lot of promises to us, their partners, that they want to help us. They're going to make sure that if we invest money, we're going to get a lot of money back. They used to send us text messages. Can you please sign in because there's high demand? But when you work with Uber, you have to understand that you're responsible for every single penny and expense. We are the middlemen. We connect you to the passenger. They take a cut, first 20%, now 25 All these expenses, they add up. And in the end, you find yourself making more than 50%, paying more than 50% of what you're making just on expenses. Then they added UberX. So many people joined as drivers. They thought that UberX was the future, so they bought a car with a loan. They're paying a mortgage. They're paying a lot of fees. They make almost what they could make if they work at Starbucks. The only difference is at Starbucks, they will get healthcare benefits. So San Francisco was a cake. And now we're, we used to be 10,000 people eating from that piece of cake, and now we're up to 100,000 or more eating from the same piece of cake. So how do you like Uber? We get this question a lot from people. I don't know why. We're not talking about a cappuccino. Do you like cappuccino? It's like somebody steps into your office and goes, how do you like working here? And what, it's supposed to be 100%? I love it. It's beautiful. It's amazing. That should be the answer. Drivers, we talk about this. Some people, the first question is, where are you from? And one guy goes, I'm from here. And the lady goes, but you have an accent. And he answered, because I drink a lot of coffee. (laughs) I told somebody I was out of milk. That's why I moved here. The ride is only 10 minutes and they want to have answers beyond their imagination. I should tell my life story between the marina and North Beach. It's arrogance more than ignorance. People nowadays see an Uber driver as an object. He has no value. He just comes with the service, picks you up at the push of a button. It's not sharing cars, it's sharing people. One day, maybe human beings will be obsolete. The self-driving car is almost done. It's not only drivers who will disappear, brokers of insurance. Who's going to get insurance when nobody is driving? Soon, all the people who are so lazy that they need a car to pick them up at a push of a button, all these people, they're going to find themselves jobless too. This is how it goes now. People don't value human beings. Most of the time, people I drive, they're not from here. They weren't even here in 2008 when we had that crash. Now people, they see San Francisco as a company. The city is a big Google. I got hired. I'm going to make some money. If I see another crash, I'm going to move somewhere else. Or the city is a mall. I'm going to shop and leave. I get so many complaints about homeless people now. That never used to happen, but now they don't fit in people's image of the city. You don't like him sitting there or sleeping there. You think you could keep him out. He's a human being. He is not an object, and he has the right to live. We cannot just take him in a garbage can and throw him somewhere else because you don't like it. Try doing something about it. What about giving people some time? What about giving time to read about why those people are there? Some people have issues. Some people were better than us, but they didn't have the luck in our society here. I have to be honest with you. It doesn't give people the ability to restart from scratch, not like it used to. I had this guy, a client, he got into the car, and I can tell from his accent that he's from India or Pakistan. And don't get me wrong, no racism, nothing like that. It's just part of the story. And he goes, do you like working with Uber? And I said, it's a trap, but I'm dealing with it. I'm doing it. And then he goes, where are you from? And I said, I'm from Africa, from a country called Congo. I go, what about you? Where are you from? And he goes, I'm from here. Just five minutes ago, he told me he'd moved here six months ago, but he feels I fit here. I'm part of the society. So he asked me, you make money doing this, and I'm silent. He says, so is it busy tonight? I said, it's Saturday night. It's usually busy. So you're going to make good money. I turn around, and I go, what's making good money for you? He says, I mean, you're going to make some good dough. And I said, no, 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 for you, for you. What do you do for a living? He says, I work in finance. So I said, so how much money do you make? He said, I make like $200,000. So is that good money for you? So I'm not going to make $200,000. Do you think that you're better than me because you made $200,000? $200,000 is not so good for me. Maybe that's what you think is good enough. But for me, it's not. Because some people are making $10 billion. Why shouldn't I be making $10 billion? He goes, how do they make $10 billion? And I told him, well, Picasso used to paint and make $15 million in five minutes. Why can't I? What separates me and you from him? The guy got frustrated and asked, can you please just drop me over here? (laughs) We get that more and more now. 
I was here when Uber was at the beginning, when Travis Kalanick was at his beginning, or Brian Chesky from Airbnb, or Jack Dorsey was trying to make Square, and the beginning of Elon Musk doing Tesla. I have driven many of them. From my own experience, when you meet them, you don't see anything inspiring in them. You don't see that genius in them. These are normal people with regular IQs. And I think to myself, well, maybe that's a good thing because it means it's easier to succeed in the city than it seems. But it's like these people sat down and fixed the next hundred years of what's going to happen to the, in this world, a new world order. Soon we're going to share everything, own nothing, and that's the new era. But is it healthy? Before we know it, we're just going to be Congo here where no one has influence. No one seeks justice. I left that mentality and mindset only to find it here. I've seen this story already. A society that doesn't value human beings will end. Just fail. People don't want to admit it. We're not the first in the world anymore. The Michael Jackson 80s is over. Maybe we have the best army in the world, the best economy, but for how long? What is the rating of our schools when it comes to math and physics? Do I need to give my kids the same education I left behind in the Congo? No. What about the employment rate? How many people that have access to health care? I'm self-sufficient. I provide my own energy. But every time I meet with somebody who's 21 or 22 years old and he's telling me he's doing UberX full-time, I feel the obligation to tell him, go somewhere else. Build yourself a future. Go to France. Go to Europe. Go somewhere that will care for you, that will give you shelter, a justice system, education, mental health care, medical care. These are the difference between animals and human beings. I didn't get these where I grew up. I came here to find them, and I still don't have them. The United States, America, it's not a country. It's a corporation. It's a platform to make money. It's an app. And within that platform, you have the operation, the option to succeed or fail. But in both cases, you're responsible. So you better start running. I'm still running. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now, back to our program. Thanks. That was wonderful. So I want to make sure that people know we can a- we can ask questions as yeah. we're going here. But I want to ask you a couple more fa- based on those stories. So, um, the 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 second person that you talked about that was an incredibly personal and articulate mm-hmm. view of the world. Is everyone like that when you interview them, or what has? <laughs> you know, I so I think when the prompt is, I am writing a book about San Francisco and the Bay Area. I'm trying to understand why we've arrived in a place where we don't see our community anymore. And I would like you to tell your story in the shadow of that. Some people say yes, and some people say no. So I think that's the filter. After that, yes, everybody is. Everybody gets to a place where I think everybody has like a little poetry in them and a little philosophy. Um, And the key is being patient and waiting and um, proving that you are open to it and that you care to hear it, you know, because some people don't. Some people are there for to speak and hear and learn something else in conversations like that. And, and you mentioned that there was a, a perspective of Silicon City as a gold rush going back mm-hmm. for multiple iterations of that gold rush and then also that social activism history. Yes. Do those, in, in your telling, were there intersection points or were they distinct worlds? And if not... What, what's, where, where were those intersections, or if they, if they were not, what can we do about them? I think there's some really um, key things that are happening, both inside the industry and in the public sector's sort of pivot right now to try to grasp some of the solutions at scale and to try to deal in a regional way around all these problems. But they're all being motivated by either a new cohort of people or young people. And so one of the things that I think was very inspiring in the book was whether it was a, uh, there's a gentleman named Saad Khan who's a younger investor, um, I'm y- younger when I started doing this book, but who knows now, um, uh, but whose whole mission is to invest in purpose-driven um, companies and to really interrogate the mission and the founder's connection to that mission. Um, I, what he's seeing also in those kind of companies is that the culture question, which has plagued uh, 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 not not just a handful, but a good number of major 
um, new tech companies um, that have had to go through sort of an internal exegesis of trying to understand why um, there's something sick from inside of them. Um, the companies that he's investing in don't have those problems. And I think the connection between mission, culture, and the market is getting solved by a number of these sort of young people. So that's very exciting. Also very excited by a number of the sort of moves by labor inside the tech industry. So I think the, the alliance between the Tech Workers Coalition sort of represents, um, is a group that represents, I think, a conversation that's building between people who would be traditionally considered sort of tech workers as programmers and administration. People would be characterized as service workers who do um, work on the grounds or work in cafeterias. But in any event, there's been a, a unionization movement within the service worker community that's been supported by traditionally tech workers. And I think that movement is very exciting because you can see alliances building across um, what, what would traditionally have been sort of segregated sectors within the industry. Um, and then I also think um, there are just a handful of places where you see very exciting protest movements happening. Um, I thought the um, mission police, the hunger strike outside the militia police station, I think the, the, the um, organization around Prop C, I think what I, it's, of course, we're at this sort of week where the navigation, where we're going to put the navigation center is becoming, you know, the controversy du jour. But um, I even think what we're trying to grapple with in terms of connecting transportation and um, housing and SB 50, whatever you think of that bill, these are all the right conversations to be having. And um, I even think what you guys are doing, what what uh, Governor Newsom is doing around homelessness, investing um, countywide and in cities around the region is important. Um, so I think we're beginning to talk around some of these sort of like wider moves on a policy level as well. And those were a series of interesting with very different starting points, examples of the intersection. But what, this is, what, what we've done is we've hollowed out the middle class, we've defunded the public sector, and we've... Um, disrespected the value of community spaces and places where we can develop consensus. And that's, we've done that across America. This is not just the Bay area. We've done that in every community in every corner of America right now. And as a consequence, we've sort of lost some of those places where you can quickly sort of get together, rally um, important solutions to occur, or even develop as a community um, a vocabulary for what kind of life you're trying to build on the other side of this. We're going through a major, this is news to no one, that we're going through a major shift where work, where ham, family, where homes, where community, where a lot of the sort of basic tent poles of what American culture were built on are just being changed overnight. And my generation, or frankly, you know, my, my son's generation are going to be responsible for building whatever comes next. Or fixing the things. Mm -hmm, exactly, or fixing <laughs> the things that, that we don't fix. Um, and I think... You know, absent some of those places where you can build critical mass, particularly in a uh, once upon a time, San Francisco could be sold a city, but now it's the center of a great regional uh, mega metropolis. And being able to organize across, you know, this isn't New York City. The five boroughs don't work together. To be able to organize across nine to 12 counties, um, uh, a, a regional transportation solution, a reasonable regional housing solution, a regional um, homelessness solution, a regional um, education solution. These are all huge challenges. Um, and prioritizing among them and understanding, understanding the synergies among them and how they all kind of work together and how one kind of needs to be, how to sequence fixing one and the next um, is, is, I think, something that, that we're all going to have to work. We're still just at the beginning of the conversation to try to get our heads around. The book, my hope is, gives us a b ability to live inside some of the lives who are sitting at the intersection of two, three, four of these problems so that we can begin to imagine, um, so that we can begin to feel part of a community again first. But then I think from that, begin to imagine a way of living together that, that, that feels healthy and thriving. Yeah. I, I may have overread what you said in terms of the examples where you thought something was moving, but you, I think you said that it's often driven by younger people. Yeah, I think there's an exciting, I mean, I think when I, when I speak to, when I spoke to younger um, folks in tech, um, they had a grounded sense of optimism. They didn't have a sense that the market itself would be, would be a corrected. They have a sense, they had a sense, they, they had to get inside the market and drive it with values from within. Um, I think a lot of the unionization stuff that we're seeing um, in the tech sector is, is a lot of the bonds across um, different kinds of workers is being led by people in their 30s. Um, and that organization is happening at a very young level. Um, 
and I think um, some of the ways of beginning to build um, political momentum around policy online and off, I, mean, I even think the new cohort of um, supervisors is much younger than um, when I arrived in the city. And as a result, they're coming in with a real sense of purpose around what they're going to do. I don't, I don't, I think we're all struggling to figure out what the right answers are and figure out how to build that legitimately within the community and, and make sure that we have the buy-in um, from people on the ground. But that's a different question from feeling like there's a fire underneath you mm -hmm. to fix, fix problems at scale. And um, I'm, going to open up for anybody in a question, but after I asked you one more, which was um, the example of people starting companies or investing mm -hmm. in companies that are purpose from the beginning, mm -hmm. as opposed to having to reorient mm -hmm. after they hit their first hiccup. Yeah. Um, do you think that's, that has legs or are those kind of sexy examples that people talk about? Do you think that's, there's something there? I think, well, I think it has to, I, I think there's, it only goes so far is the answer to that, right? And I think some of what we've grown distrustful of over time is the ability to marry policy with private sector movement, to regulate an industry without killing it, um, and to use the language of regulation to speak our values. Um, in, uh, in my lawyer days, I, we worried about privacy and the First Amendment deeply. Um, in the work that we would do. And it it would be important to, um, with clients who are journalists, artists, many of whom were, were publishing through tech companies, um, find ways of adhering faithfully to this, the standards and the traditions of the country that had come before them. Many, much of that reason is because folks are journalists and they had come from an industry that, that, that wasn't, was offline and then on. Um, and I think we have to be okay with the idea that, um, you know, short-term rentals can can get some safety regulations on them. Um, one of the things I think, like, we lost, for example, in the tradition to ride-sharing, transition to ride-sharing, was that cabs were an important paratransit um, resource for the disabled. Now, certainly, uh, I think uh, a handful of ride-sharing companies have tried to sort of create some services within them that that are modest equivalents but that's not because they're being regulated to do it and the minute they don't want to that goes away um so i think we have to sort of understand we have to remember like you know so one of the one of the responses to the book occasionally is but but change is inevitable and we'll just arrive at the other side of this period and it will be um we will have solved all these problems and this is just the pain point that we're at right now and it reminds me of arguments that you could read about in the, you know, if you go back to contemporaneous literature around the Industrial Revolution, the arguments that we had children in factories, or we had um, uh, uh, whole families that would so, sort of go to work, or that we had um, uh, zero health regulations. So you'd see these sort of like nightmare uh, situations coming out of people being exposed um, to heavy industry for long periods of time. We, we know in our bones what what's right, and it shouldn't be that hard for us to begin to... Um, hand in glove, work with, work with people inside the private sector and without to, to build a way of life that meaningfully reflects it. And that part of the reason I wrote this book about here is so much money arrived here quickly that it, this city leapt sort of 10 years ahead of everywhere else in the country. And so it's been going through dynamics that we're, we only now are seeing Amazon arrive in New York, or we're seeing a headquarters get built in Austin, or we're seeing Seattle reckon with its homelessness problem for the first time. Um, whereas these are things that have been happening here for a long, long time. So we're in a position and there's still so much money here and there's an opportunity to be able to turn the sort of genius of the, the industry and without it, the sort of good hearts and the, the, the tradition of social justice is here and really turn it towards these problems. There's still a window of opportunity for that and an opportunity to present to the rest of the country what is possible when you take all of the resources that are here. Um, and so that's the hope that this book is allegorically beneficial to folks outside of here, that they can take some of the lessons inside the book um, and pay them forward throughout the country, not just here. Yes, please. And we'll hold on for the mic so we can record I've been here 11 years. Uh, I played a lot of games here and got on a lot of hamster wheels. And I see a lot of hamsters, money whore hamster wheels. 
and uh, that's why you're losing. It's a new phrase. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just. I mean, that's what that's what this city is consists of. The citizenry of this city, as I see it, in 11 years, mm -hmm. is a is a, a series of money whores on hamster wheels, and they have no room for civility. And I'm working my way out because I wasn't raised this way, and I don't see any. Uh, benefit in, in all of it, and I'd like you to speak to that because you've talked e the two people you addressed. I relate strongly to the second guy. He's a bright dude, and he's got life figured out, but he's living on a hamster wheel, mm -hmm. and that's what everybody I've seen here is on a hamster wheel. They have no, they talk to each other, but there's no communication. There's a big difference between talking and communicating. They don't communicate here. They just talk and they just run for the dollar. So I think when it, when, when, no, 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 no. I, <laughs> you raise the, if you're insane, you'll raise a family. <laughs> yeah, and we, 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 we're working our way back with our son. Um, <laughs> um, so color me insane. Um, the, 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 there are, I, one of the insights that sort of rocked, chilled me a little bit in the book was um, from a CEO of a company who's been here for a long time and who's uh, hired a number of people and who sort of watched the um, life cycle of companies and projects in the Bay Area speed up and speed up over time. Um, so he's watching kids get hired and really have to kind of, if they're in hardware, string together a series of sort of four-year gigs maximum. And if they're in software, it might be even faster. It might be uh, months, a year, two years. Um, and just sort of chain those together as part of a career. It's no longer you're sort of working at... Um, Intel until you retire. It's it's let, let me let me jump from company to country as I assemble um, my career. Maybe you get make enough money to get an exit or leave, or maybe you get um, maybe an IPO comes along and you feel lucky enough at that moment. Um, that changes people's expectations with respect to um, how long they're going to be in one place how long they're going to be invested in a community. And that's structural. I don't know that it's a lack of civics, like civic instincts. I think there are these structural circumstances that are just fighting people's sense. If you don't know that your next job is here, it's hard, I think, to care about the public school that your kid isn't in two blocks away or um, understand how you're going to clean up um, the neighborhood that's around you when you might, just, you might have to move to the South Bay or might have to move to San Jose. Um, or might feel like that's better for you, you know? And I think it's the, the, similarly, the, the, the same guy, um, I think observed that he, you know, a lot of the kids he's working for are handsomely paid, but are living with roommates, um, because their rent situation is just eating them alive, let alone, a uh, you know, a family where both parents work in the tech industry, but both of them are therefore commuting on the bus down to the, whatever campus they work on, coming back fighting to keep their kid in a private school because they think that's the right choice to make. What time do they have to volunteer? What time do they have to learn about things around them? Let alone anybody who's seriously underemployed and therefore has to, you know, I don't want to create a false equivalence. There are people who are like working to the bone for their lives, stringing together five, you know, two to five jobs um, to make ends meet. And that's a totally different life, but they also don't have that time. So, um, the pressure of the economy, like the complete decoupling of housing and income, the um, dislocation people set, feel geographically, the lack of permanence they feel to the place, I think all of that structurally has fought their ability to feel, people's ability to feel traditionally um, like they can get rooted and invest in their neighbors and care about who lives across the hall from them, let alone people who live further away. Um, you map onto that then a sort of kind of libertarian streak inside of the industry and a sort of instinct to celebrate geniuses. And then you get, you get some sort of troubling ideology around the industry as well. But that, that I think, is mostly um, wrapping paper around what are structural problems. But other than that, everything's great. Yes. I'd like to remind our audience that they're listening to um, Kerry McClellan, the author of Silicon C C City, in uh, conversation with Lenny Mendoka. So we have more questions. Yes, I just wanted you to follow up on the phenomenon of the Google bus or the Facebook bus, where uh, young people prefer often to live in the city. We see that. But also they prefer to work where those engines are of industry. And they have one foot in each, but they're not giving up either of them. So just wonder what your thoughts were about that. You referred to it. Yeah, I mean... <sighs> 
I think, well, first of all, I want to I give a big nod to Leslie Dreyer in the book, who, who helped me sort of see through the press coverage on the Google bus, which um, had largely sensationalized the issue as being around the buses themselves. And it was really about the buses as a symbol for the ability for tech workers and tech companies to sort of pay their way out of problems that other people in the city had to live with. Um, so the real, the, the real thing is that the Google bus is a solution um, to the absence of infrastructure, public infrastructure around transit in the Bay Area. Um, a lot of people who work in tech today are uh, less engineers and more engineering designers or experienced designers, et cetera, and a city feels better to them uh, than a suburb, and they're younger, and so a place where there's music, a place where there's restaurants, a place where they can go out at night uh, feels like a more attractive place to live. The buses are just the buses were subsidized by tax breaks. The buses were subsidized um, in some part by giving them access to HOV lanes. All of those was a way for the public sector to buoy, um, thanks to successful lobbying by industry, uh, a, a sort of fast track for workers to make it down to the Bay Area. Nothing conceivably wrong with that, other than the, that it that everybody else has to deal with sort of an absence of affordable transit. So folks who are getting dislocated from the Bay Area are trying to fight their way back to the jobs that they've always worked in and face the Faustian bargain of a two-hour commute from Tracy or um, uh, living in a, their car in a parking lot. Um, and I think that's what the Google bus story was trying to identify. Um, the challenge, of course, on top of that is the fact that a lot of these jobs still live in the South Bay in for tax purposes. So business taxes, to a large degree, live in the South Bay. In, uh, uh, employee taxes, income taxes live in the South Bay. And so there's a degree to which San Francisco has been sort of treading water um, because of the Google buses as well, because regional tax, there's no regional taxation. There's just that county, one county is benefiting from the taxes and San Francisco isn't. Um, and so you have those two things as a result of the Google bus as being kind of a, a <coughs> added stress on the city and its infrastructure. <coughs> I think it's on. Yes, I have two questions. Uh, first, um, where do you think that San Francisco as a city is going? Are you pessimistic, optimistic, realistic, optimistic? <laughs> <laughs> and also, uh, how do you select the, the interviewees so you can have the right balance <coughs> between these courses? Yeah. I mean, both, both exceptionally hard questions. Um, I'm, by my nature as a person, um, uh, optimistic when I'm speaking with people. I'm pessimistic when I'm alone. Uh, and so the benefit of doing this book has been, uh, you know, I have like 100, the 50 people in the book and then kind of 100 other people living with me, um, keeping my spirits up. Um, people are, human beings are great things. Uh, individual humans are lovely. Um, we um, have built ourselves something of a hamster wheel, and and I won't fill out the rest of his metaphor. But <laughs> uh, but but because of that, we're kind of exhausted, and we're not giving ourselves the ability to be our best. Um, but you know, there's lots of little signs right now that and I've mentioned some of them, that make me really optimistic about the kind of momentum that's building and the scope of imagination that's beginning to be talked about. We just have a really small window before um, uh, other policymakers outside of the state decide to kill the economy here. Uh, and we, we possibly don't have the gravy train of perpetual growth providing us the opportunity to siphon some of the funds that are needed towards public resources. So that's... That's that. The harder question of like, how do I balance the book uh, and and balance the situation? It's a it, you know, it's it's um, my approach is constantly to look at it and think the book is as uh, find every weakness in it and find what's bad in it and show it to people who are brutally honest with me and who tell me what's missing from it. Um, my wife is the best of those resources. <laughs> um, no joke. My wife, I, the book got 50 times better after um, she took an ax to it. Um, uh, but um, other than the degrees to which I need to sort of like guard um, uh, certain people's identity into this, it helps to bring collaborators into the process as well who have better perspective on some of the issues than you do. And to follow up on that question and something you said earlier, uh, would you propose having, you know, going back and forth between New York and San Francisco, 
would you propose, propose to the Bay Area that uh, something for the future would be uh, San Francisco, Berkeley, Oakland, San Jose, and Marin County all join in one city state like New York and, and, and make it a, a, a regional, uh, not a regional government, but one big city state government? I, I think there, problems? I think there are some real merits to it. I mean, yeah. th there, there are ways in which uh, Brooklyn, Manhattan, they, they each have their own DAs. They, there are ways in which a lot of the municipal government is still sort of broken up apart. But um, it streamlined everything around uh, public infrastructure, around large scale health crises, around large scale um, education solutions. I mean, we still struggle with our public schools. I mean, New York has the, I think. Uh, most segregated public school system in America, and it has um, uh, a staggering number of homeless children in its public schools as well, as does San Francisco. So I'm not pretending as if uh, New York isn't living through the crisis in its own idiom. But if you get bounced out of a neighborhood that you lived in for decades, your family lived in for decades in Manhattan, and you have to move to the edges of Queens or the edges of Brooklyn, there's still a subway system that... that um, can hopefully get you to your job. It doesn't reach everywhere, but it's a reasonably good one. And you still vote in a city election for um, somebody who can speak to the issues that you're going through and hopefully address them um, um, at City Hall. Uh, and you're fundamentally disenfranchised the minute you move to Contra Costa County from here, let alone mm -hmm. further afield. Um, you're suddenly voting in a different municipality, a different county government, and you just don't have a voice in the city that you did once upon a time. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I, I think that we discount that political disenfranchisement here. We discount that obligation to sort of be present for one another in one space. I don't think the organizing around Amazon, which we can talk about what the city gained or lost by Amazon arriving, but it was a powerful moment when the community spoke very clearly to Mayor de Blasio, Governor Cuomo, and um, Jeff Bezos and Amazon in total and said, we are uncomfortable with this amount of subsidy, with you subsidizing the arrival of this company, which is going to dislocate a great number of people from their homes, which is going to transform the business environment in this region without any consideration a priori to the fact that our transit isn't working yet, our schools aren't working yet, and that we don't, we aren't stable here ourselves. And we, you know, it's just an indictment of the, the, the economy that isn't working here also isn't working in New York. Um, but what that was, was a moment where people were being able to organize, not just within Queens, but across the city. There were allies in my neighborhood in Brooklyn. There were allies, the city councilman was, uh, who's, who represents um, a, a district to the west, uh, the west of Manhattan, um, was, was an important voice on this. Every, these people rallied together to say, if there's going to be a deal, the deal has to serve the people of this neighborhood first. And if, there isn't that, if that isn't part of the understanding here, we don't, you don't need to arrive. I think it's look. There are people who think that that was a huge that that the city wrote off millions of dollars. I, I I couldn't be prouder to watch people organize as individual citizens from the grassroots to speak clearly to a corporation and the politicians that supported them what their needs were. Mm -hmm. And I think that that the ability to organize regionally here around that same kind of clear communication, the inability um, and the inability for them to know which. Uh, city hall or which county government to sort of go to has been a r real challenge. Um, and there, there, is, there, is some, there are some signs, particularly around homelessness and housing, that um, state government, uh, um, Newsom's administration and others are, are trying to think, where, think that way around some of the structures. Great. We have time for a couple more questions. Yes. To Elaborate on the idea of organization. I'm fascinated to think that young tech people making six figures feel the need to unionize and to come together in that manner. Can you elaborate on what's oh, going on? Don't get me on? wrong. It's like cafeteria workers and 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 uh, so it doesn't staff. include the tech workers. It's just the so the 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 unions are usually subunions of like the cafeteria workers have unionized at Intel. I think at Facebook now and a couple other places. Um, I believe the custodial <laughs> staff at a couple of places have unionized as well. I, I need, I, I don't want to sort of okay. uh, speak, speak out of turn, so, but it hasn't gone up is what I was wondering. They to, receive the to, protest, the organizing support and the protest support from programmers and others in the, in the organization who feel like it's important to them, despite whatever salary they're earning, however high it may be to be working at a place that's paying a fair wage and allowing organization, uh, for everybody at the, at, 
who works there. Uh, part of the issue was a lot of people who were in the service industry were technically freelancing, and so they didn't have the same worker protections um, uh, that anybody who considered themselves a programmer would have. So that's where the organization is happening. It's not organizing to benefit the programmers. It's organizing to benefit. It's organizing across that divide to ensure that everybody at the uh, um, corporation had similar benefits, let's say. Okay. Yes. Hi. Um, so we've heard a lot about the reasons why people are, are coming to the city, uh, maybe to jump on a, a hamster wheel or because they are chasing uh, some money. Um, I, I think but outside of the poll, there's or outside of this uh, poll, there's also a strong push. Uh, a lot of people are relocating here, not necessarily to chase money, but also fleeing poverty themselves. Um, a, a lot of the rural economies uh, of, of this country are collapsing. Um, you know, the, the industries that sustained us are no longer there. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so we don't really have the option to mm -hmm. stay put, right? If, if you want to mm -hmm. pay off your student debts and all that, you got to come here. Um, so I'm curious with, with all the questions and, and problems that, that we talk about, and we're, we're trying to find solutions at the local, regional, or even state level, uh, how much are we really able to do? And in what cases, especially in, in the case of inequality, are they systemic at the national or even international level? And, and potentially not, you know, maybe a little bit more intransigent than than just a, a regional or, or state approach would, would allow us to, you know, resolve them. Thank you. I think you're 100% right. Oh, no. Yeah. No, no, no. <clears throat> but look, I, I, I think part of this is about the humility, like the humility we have to have in the face of, of history. Like some of the people who would like to trap the city in time and sort of freeze um, change from occurring because it's been so painful recently. There's just too much macroeconomically happening right now. There's too much about late-stage capitalism that has sort of um, uh, allowed market, market sort of private sector actors to act with an amount of momentum and a lack of regulation such that we, we just don't have the kind of breaks on the system that we used to have. Um, and um, whatever phenomenologically is happening in terms of the, the present project of cruelty that lives in the White House and the um, um, confusing echoes that we're hearing back and forth internationally across many leaders and many political movements, that, that's all right on. I mean, we have to live with that and we are affected by it and we can't hide from it. Um, part of what I think is important about looking at, you know, San Francisco's one city, but I think you could, you could say this about New York, you could say this about DC, LA, Seattle, anywhere there's a strong industry driving forward. Even America's strong cities are sick right now. Um, even America's thriving cities and thriving economies have sometimes the greatest inequality in them because of some of the dynamics that are creating um, uh, such scarcity around housing, such tension on the public infrastructure, um, and uh, at a time when, particularly after uh, decades of um, uh, tax policy and deregulation policy, where we really just aren't positioned to sort of capture the funds or sort of rebuild institutions that, that, have, that have been left to atrophy for that period of time. So it's important to tell that story about America's strong cities. It's also important for us to begin to feel the urgency in America's strong cities. That's not just okay that we have like a great economy humming forward right now or that, you know, finance is kick, killing it in New York or that the entertainment industry churns out a great marble film every summer or two, but that... Um, but that we are responsible for articulating and actually manifesting a way of life here that looks like it's fairer and meets the promise of whatever the economy is selling. Because if we can't sell that to, uh, into D.C. or we can't sell that to rural areas or we can't really make that true, we don't have, we don't have another option to provide against the, the story that's being told on the other side. Can I uh, take the moderator's privilege to kind of give an Please. opportunity to both give a little bit of a, a closing question for you and then ask us a piece of advice. So, um, you know, I, I thought your, the book was a really helpful depiction of the, the reality that we're seeing here. Mm -hmm. And as you said, it's not unique to here, but we are often on the tip of the spear of a lot of these and have a history of being a place where we find ways to think differently and expansively and innovate yeah. our way out of this. Yeah. So if you were in a position to say, okay, I've learned a lot from these discussions and from exploring this elsewhere, and you are a realistic pessimist, 
saying absent change, this isn't going to absent action, this isn't going to get better. But you said, you know, we really are not going to go back, but we want to build a more inclusive economy in the Bay Area. We want to help ensure that those rich traditions can come together in a way that actually makes it a place where people can afford to live, to get around, Mm -hmm. to have an opportunity to be the richness of diversity that's this place. And you're king of the Bay Area, queen of the Bay Area. What would you do? And have any closing advice for those who are trying to think through that at whatever level? Yeah. That's the hardest question. But um, so look, three you know, t- two and a half years into pa- living in Pakistan, um, I I realized part of what we were watching was um, uh, thirty plus years since like nineteen late seventies of America, Israel, and India um, playing games in that country for a period of time, and 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 basically delegitimizing every institution that lived there, most importantly, their schools. Um, and most importantly, rob, robbing the education system of, of its ability to sort of create whole and, and, and powerful people there. Um, look, I am, I am, I think we are living through the same crisis now. I think this is a problem that has been, has been snowballing, um, since the eighties. Um, I think if you, if you want to reach back into the sixties and seventies, you probably could in terms of, um, uh, the beginning of the homelessness problem here. And, and so you have to just, the two things you had to do is think as far into the future as you can, which to me says schools and as, and to, to address the heart of the crisis right now, which means homelessness. And so I think if, if the Bay area invests in schools and homelessness over this period of time, um, as deeply as it can to turn them around and make them a model of that, those would be where I'd place my priorities. Because the, the goal is not to fix the, the community five years from now or even 10 years from now, but to look 30 years ahead and say, how do we want this all to work over, over the long term? Well, um, that's a uh, helpful piece of advice for yeah. us to think bigger and bolder about what we might be able to do. And um, for those of us who are here, just a reminder of this fantastic book. For those who are listening, Silicon City by Kerry McClellan would encourage you to to, uh, buy it, tell your friends to buy it and read it and continue the conversation with real people around how we make this the place we'd like it to be as opposed Mm -hmm. to the place that we uh, had the privilege of inheriting. And thank you, (laughs) Kerry, for uh, helping bring that to the forefront tonight and in your work. Thank you, Lenny. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. And so ends another event in the 117th year of enlightened discussion at the Commonwealth Club. <laughs> <laughs> that was great. Thank you.